0: rely on on x hunt when i'm hunting turkeys it is an invaluable turkey hunting tool this festival and concert season will be all about the boots and Takova's is your stop before attending your next concert all Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend
1: Yes, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable,
0: and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacovas store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And find your new favorite pair of boots today. If you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the Black Buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative Bold Flavor Full Pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. Meat Hunt,
2: the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything.
0: Presented by First Light. Go farther, stay longer. Ed Arnett, I didn't know uh, till, I don't think I knew till now. There used to be a bat, like a bat biologist i did (laughs) but i I just can't picture because i figure i always figure you um that your biology interests are dovetailed with your hunting interests but with
2: bats that's not really the case they certainly were i uh i I grew up always wanting to be a biologist and wanting to study big game like most biologists a lot of biologists do and uh I, i did my master's on bighorn sheep so i fulfilled that for a long time and uh when I went to work at uh, in the Pacific Northwest, I started working a lot more on non-game issues. And when I worked to work for a timber company, Weyerhaeuser, I really started engaging in bat research. My PhD was on uh, bats and forest management, did a lot of work on wind energy and bats. And before I came to TRCP and got to meet you guys, I was uh, running conservation programs for bat conservation international and led a bunch of research on wind energy and bat kills across the country so you mean like bats running into um windmills or not windmills but they're being hit by the turning blades they don't run into them bats have a very unique echolocation system and they that helps them see in the dark and if there's too many of them that run into things there it'd be what i'd call losers in darwin's casino (laughs) they're not supposed to run into things so uh they're getting hit by the turbines so what was uh
0: what was Weyerhaeuser's interest in bats? So you know, like if you if for you listeners, if you got a, a ream of printer paper laying around, there's a very good chance if you go look at that printer paper, it will say Weyerhaeuser on it. Right. What was their interest
2: in uh in bats? So back in 1990, when I uh, finished up my graduate program on my bighorn sheep study, I went to the Northwest and I was working for the Forest Service then went to work with Warehouser. The reason I mentioned the Forest Service job is I started that literally a month after they listed the Northern Spotted Owl. And a couple of years later, um, I, uh, I basically um, applied for this job and got it. And, um, you know, at that time, Spotted Owls were driving a lot of the, issues for this forest products Dude, company. Dude, spot, spot, yeah, okay, go, go yeah, ahead. Yeah, I got a yeah, comment But it's an time. endangered species issue, and so my job, uh, we were hired on basically to look at all of the managed forest and all the different kinds of wildlife that use managed forests and how, in fact, managed forests provide habitat or don't, and what we could do in a, in a intensively managed forest context to manage all these species that could be listed in the future. Back at that time, they were called uh, Category 2 species, which all that really meant was there was a designation that they could be listed in the future. So Weyerhaeuser hired a bunch of people, uh, myself included, to look at things beyond just spotted owl and other endangered species issues. Because in
0: in their mind, all the trouble that spotted owl, all the controversy and trouble and, and just bad for business stuff that the spotted owl brought on to the logging industry, they were thinking to themselves, "What's the next thing that's, that's going right. to come up, and that's how can right. we get out ahead
2: of this?" That's exactly right.
0: Which is like being a responsible player, right? Yeah,
2: exactly. They were thinking ahead of the game, I mean, whatever their, mo- regardless of their motivation, regardless of the motive. Yeah, obviously there were business ties to that and community relationships and those kind of being good neighbors and that kind of stuff. But the reality was, it was all about you know the future, license to operate, and at that time and there still are today a number of species that are potentially going to be listed so i did most of my work i shifted from most of the work on four-legged ungulates and you know other four-legged critters to nothing but songbirds amphibians in-stream amphibians in particular those that utilize small streams and forests and bats so that's how i got into it and uh one thing led to another, and started working pretty intensively on bats, and developed a PhD dissertation project on it, and kind of the rest is history. So, what was the what was the vulnerability of the bats? Like, what was the bats timber problem? harvest?
0: Timber harvest. Like, they were. what do they need? What were they using timber for, nesting? Well, what they need,
2: yeah. They, they need them for roosting, um, for both maternity roosts, where they have their young. You're talking well.
0: in hollows, in hollow trees. Yeah,
2: some will roost behind uh, exfoliating bark, so the crevices in bark, and you've seen this walking around the woods. Dead trees, they'll go into woodpecker holes, sometimes they'll uh just a just a slight crack in a live tree can create a, a place for bats so they either roost during the night you know they, they do what's called night roosting but they also have maternity colonies and sometimes you'll be walking around next time you're out in the ponderosa pine forest you might see a big slab of bark peeling off a oh yeah dead tree there might be two or three hundred bats under that thing just depending on how big the i had no is. idea man so, what, what species yeah. of bat is this so um, it could be any, any of a number of species. Okay. There's what we call the crevice roosting species, and that could be anything from big brown to little brown bats, uh, what's called the long-eared myotis. That was the pictures you were looking at a little while ago in my house. That was a long-eared uh, myotis, getting a drink of water. Uh, there's several of them that use, uh, use those crevices. I'm
0: guilty can't. of having not paid a whole hell of a lot of attention to bats in my life. I didn't either. I got that kind of like hun- I got that hunting and fishing problem that you get where, you like I I, I spent a lot of time observing, thinking about, reading about, talking about game either game species or like charismatic animals, right? Right. So uh, animals that maybe megafauna. animals that sort of have something to do with hunting and fishing, even if they're only a peripheral player. Right, like I'm not gonna hunt humpback whales, but I'm interested in humpback whales because when I'm out fishing, salmon and halibut and whatnot, I'm observing humpbacks and watching them fish, and so they sort of enter my consciousness, right? But like the bat has never had a real in hold with me.
2: Yeah, and and it does it for most people. I mean, most hunters probably wondering if they could hit them with a shotgun when they're out running around in the evening, you know? But. The reality is they're ridiculously important to ecosystems and and the insectivorous bats eat insects at a rate that can oftentimes render the, uh, 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 render, that's maybe not the right word, but uh, lessen the need for pesticides in in agricultural systems because they eat so many uh, insects. There's some studies in Texas that demonstrate it's into the multi-billions of dollars in terms of the loss of or the reduction of agricultural pests um they but they are also important pollinators they're important seed dispersers across the world they eat just about everything those, uh-huh. that, eat, those that eat blood those that eat fish some have specialized hooks for catching fish uh, all the bat pictures you've seen around my place here they're all insectivorous bats but they, they play a vital role in you know, the interesting thing, is we, we started calling things like this. You know, you've heard LBJ, the little brown jobs for dicky birds.
0: Oh, yeah. And then uh, and then and there's LBMs in mycology. LBM. Little brown mushrooms. Little brown mushrooms. Where it's like, yep. if you're out mushroom hunting and you see a little brown mushroom, it's like, just keep walking. Yep. You'll never positively <laughs> identify that thing. You know what I mean? Or, yep. or that's kind of like the, just a term like, we got your, you know, morels, corals, bleats,
2: bleats. LBMs, yep. <laughs> little brown mushrooms. Well, we start calling bats and other things like them the uh, not so charismatic microfauna. <laughs> yeah, that's a good term for it. <laughs> but they're critical. They're absolutely critical. And it start, yeah, it starts getting you to think about ecosystems and and you know biological communities and systems. Everything's interconnected. Well, it, Eldo
0: Leopold called the cogs and wheels. Cogs and the wheels. Exactly right. Yep. You know, I was in um, I was in the Seychelles. You know where the Seychelles are? No. Like, they sit off, if you imagine, if you went due east out of Somalia, way hell out in the Indian Ocean, the Seychelles are so far removed that no one even knew. They, they had never been colonized. No one knew about them until they came up with, like, intercontinental shipping. Huh. Like, no indigenous people. It wasn't like the Polynesian islands where indigenous people eventually found all the, like, Hawaii and everything. No one ever stepped foot on the Seychelles until someone showed up in, like, a full-on ship. No one knew they were there, but we were there. And the only native mammal on the Seychelles is a bat. Yeah, big, huge, freaking bats. Big fruit bats. Yeah, that's yeah. what they were. Come out at night, look yep. like a jet, like a bat. The kind of bat that would like bite your neck and kill you. Yep but not. And they are consumed. They like fruit.
2: In, in some, some countries, there's still consumption of bats. Yeah, that was one of the few times I ever
0: paid attention to a bat. And yeah. my kids like to go on, they like it to me to go on YouTube and pull up videos of Aboriginal Australians hunting bats with boomerangs. Huh. Which is like, if you got kids, that's big shit to a kid. Yeah, that's it's, it's, it's Hitting a too. Hitting a bat on. with a boomerang <laughs> is endlessly fascinating to children. That's a hell of a lot of skill too. <laughs> oh yeah, these guys are good, man. And they round them up and cook them um so we've like i can't remember where we left off we're talking can, to I eggs so we're gonna talk about sage grouse oh yes you, you want to add you I gotta know, add i know
2: where we're left off but go ahead i know right where you we know we where, left where we left
0: off. Off. i do i wrote it down
2: <laughs> how long ago was
0: it that we had a sage grouse conversation
2: a year ago and maybe a month
0: okay so we're doing a so, year ago checking on something and here's why go day- oh, oh, sorry here's why you should care here's why you should care about sage grouse besides the fact that it's just like a uh it passes the, the test that I put out earlier, the test I put out where, like, I'm interested in things that have hunting and fishing implications. So there's that with sage grouse. So, you know, this is a, a, a game bird, the largest grouse species we have. Um, it's a very, it's an iconic bird that is symbolizes, is kind of a, a, of a symbol of a certain biome or a certain habitat type of the, the great sagebrush seas. Um, and also it's really important to watch because earlier, like we were talking about the spotted owl. If you're old enough to remember the, the spotted owl debate, the spotted owl be kind of came this, this sort of bird that was a proxy for a broader argument. And the broader argument was about, um, at, to what level do we inconvenience our commercial activities to what degree are we willing to inconvenience our commercial activities uh, out of deference to wildlife is that fair ed that's very fair so it became like it became this symbol of a national debate about if we determine we can make money doing something but that we're going to we're going to we're going to perhaps lose species of wildlife in order to make that money is it worthwhile or not? Like, do we push ahead or do we pull back? And it was sad for the bird because here's this bird has no idea. Any of this is going on, but the bird becomes like a maligned creature. Yep. The bird becomes like the punchline to a joke or a threat sure <laughs> there was a lot of that going around in the 90s yeah and it wound up being like the, the bird's reputation kind of suffered and in a way like if you think about these sort of the debates we're, we're sort of in a current thing now with you know we're currently now with like gray wolves okay where the gray wolf sort of stands in as a symbol of this bigger argument about do are we gonna allow an animal beyond the landscape that is so inconvenient to some people Like it's an inconvenience to livestock producers and a lot of hunters perceive it as being very inconvenient to them and so what is our tolerance level going to be of this species and it suffers in a similar way that the spotted owl suffer and it's always sad to see this happen where the wolf, like this animal that cannot, that would be incapable of comprehending the debate that he's in like wolves exist without the knowledge that this conversation is taking place they don't know they have no like it's they don't know anything else of the world beyond their own experience. Like if you ask a wolf in Wyoming, he doesn't know that there's a bunch in Alaska, but they're missing from other areas. It's just like way outside. He just like understands his little realm. But meanwhile, we're talking about them as this big and become this big symbol. And they become something that winds up being like the animal itself becomes controversial when all he's doing is putting us in a situation where we need to, to discuss our tolerances. But he becomes sort of a victim of it that's all like a preface to say that right now if you want to understand wildlife politics and kind of where we're headed and the kind of conversations that we're going to continue to have the current version the current spotted owl like today's spotted owl real quick though ed what happened to this? how's the spotted owl doing now
2: is he good well, no they're not off the list yet they're not off the list no um <clears throat> and just to add one quick thing to that you know they became the poster child and in, in my view um really kind of resembled the metaphor of you can't see the forest because of the trees in front of you. And everybody focused on spotted owls, but it was really about that ecosystem and about accelerated harvest of old growth forest and how important old growth forests were. We learned a lot about, you know, at that time there wasn't an immense amount of research, particularly in managed forests, And I think we learned a lot about you know how you can manage structural features and habitat features for the animal without necessarily having older forests but you have older forest conditions and but what i think a lot of people realized in with the spotted owl as the poster child that this is about an ecosystem that's vital to so many different creatures and you can manage you can you can preserve old growth forest but you can also learn and also manage for habitat in in managed forests as well,
0: yeah, and in the same way that that spotted owl became a poster child or symbolic of old growth forest, what we're going to talk about now like with sage grouse. The sage grouse is sort of standing in as this as the poster child of sagebrush. Yep, and I, like a, a better one, a thing that would ring with more people perhaps would be if the if the, the if the American pronghorn or, or antelope were in as rough of a spot as the, as the sage grouse is, I think people might be seeing this differently. More well-known creature. And just it's kind of more like the there's time. just like, kind of like a cooler. It's just bigger. It's more recognizable. Yeah. You know, yep. you show a picture of people that animal, they're going to know. Yeah. To start a conversation about sage grouse, you almost got to be like, okay, here's what one looks like. Because a lot of people don't really know. Right. But to, to wrap up the point I was making earlier in, in leading into this, this conversation that that we're having about inconv- like economically inconvenient animals, and what and how much do we curtail activities in order to ensure that we don't drive species to extinction? And when we talk about extinction, it's we're talking about making things gone forever. This conversation will always be going on; it's just the players will change. That's right,
2: on the wildlife and the human front.
0: Yeah the wildlife and that's good because you know what at a time if we hadn't figured out electricity um and we were driving when we were driving uh some whales to extinction and driving some whales to near extinction in order to make fuel oil for city lamps we would have been having this conversation in the 1800s yep instead of when we did yep but the whale was saved by electricity or probably... Oh, Among no other Petroleum. <laughs> yeah, but other things. No, Among not electricity, things, yeah. yeah, but, but right. uh, fossil fuels. Yep.
2: So... Which is at the heart of this discussion.
0: Which, yeah, sage which, which yeah, to bring even more full circle ones about this. So we're going to talk about sage grouse, but remember, when we're talking about sage grouse, we're talking about a current version of something that will always be happening in our society, in our country, which is a country that places a tremendous value on wildlife. And also... We place a tremendous value on economic
2: prosperity. Yep. You know, um, if I may, before I tell you where we left off and start into that, you also made a point in the last podcast that really hammers home on this because you were talking about, you'd think if you went to the Philippines or some other place, you could just catch the hell out of fish. And not always the case. No. No. And there's that linkage between uh, that social and economic component with conservation that's vital. I mean, we want wildlife in this country. We have um, a variety of laws and principles that we work from to keep wildlife. We have, you know, the legacy of Theodore Roosevelt and, and all of the people that he worked with and were colleagues with. And thereafter that, you know, define that social um desire to have wildlife in our landscapes and then we've been trying to figure out that economic balance ever since but make no mistake if we had 500 million people in the u.s and hardly any resources we wouldn't have very many wildlife either that's the funny thing i find like this is uh
0: you know like guys that like to get all uh ready for like societal collapse like prepper type guys they're always like real fired up about like having the right kind of hunting guns like you'll see them online debating like what's the perfect gun for post-apocalyptic hunting scenarios it'd be like dude post-apocalyptic scenarios or like societal collapses in failed states generally mean there is no wildlife right yeah you don't have a fail you don't have a, like robust wildlife within a failed state that's right wildlife that is point. the first thing that goes
2: yep and that was your point oh was i talking about that well that was the whole point of i thought you know, the discussion about the Philippines where you're talking about going fishing and hard to find a fish because I, of the impoverished scenario. I was reading It's not
1: going to just turn into the frontier days again. Huh? Yeah, like, <laughs> like, yeah, like right.
0: Yeah, yeah bikes are coming through the road. No, this one guy, this one prepper I was reading on one time, he was talking about he's like laying it out for his buddies. And he's like, hey, here's the thing, though, man. In a real post-apocalyptic, you know, societal collapse scenario, you need a gun that's real good for rats and dogs. Because he was like, he's planning on, he's gonna be eating these rats, but he thinks that the dogs are gonna be out trying to kill you, that the dogs are gonna pack up. Like, this is the level of detail like, 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 like prepper guys get into. He's got it all sorted out. Yeah. But uh, all right, so a year ago, where was the, can you just lay out for me what's going on with sage grouse? Like, okay. What's going on in general? What was going on a year ago? And then we're gonna focus on what happened since a year ago.
2: Okay. So when you and Ronnie were out hunting and we hooked up and talked about sage grouse, it was days, literally days, after the um, decision was made as a not warranted decision by the Fish and Wildlife Service to list and provide protections under the Endangered Species Act for sage grouse. Meaning that, they, they looked at the sage grouse issue and tried to figure out, like,
0: do we need to make give them Endangered Species Act protections? Correct yeah based ran on, on numbers ran all the and,
2: numbers and said you know what we thought we might need to but we don't well they didn't run they ran a lot of numbers but there was a lot that went into that that we'll get into on what it took to get to that decision but not everything was in place and that's why it's so important for our talk today about what still isn't yet in place per se and what's being considered but what led up to that were decades of research, a lot of concern back in the '90s from biologists, not not, not you know uh, NGO. Well, I got, um, I got, it's
0: killing me. I got to interrupt you. Go, go ahead. Can, can you back up 150 years? Oh man, <laughs> not 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 detail level, but tell. Yeah. How, like, I know it's impossible saying this, and like this kind of question drives biologists nuts. How many of these birds were there? Where were they living? And how much has their habitat been reduced. Okay. And how much has their numbers been reduced? Just so people kind of understand like well how this even came to be.
2: Yep. Um, they are an obligate of sagebrush, which means they cannot live without sagebrush in their lives. So you didn't have them in the east or the south or in Illinois or, you know, in the mid, heart of the Midwest. You know, so So went the sage-grouse as sagebrush did. So they were everywhere where there was sagebrush. And at that time, there were 14 states, I believe at least three provinces, um, that had extensive sagebrush habitat. There was an estimate, and I remember we talked about this because you asked me if I knew where the 60 million bison uh, figure came from. It was guesstimated, I'll say, at best, 16 million sage-grouse. At the turn of the century, you know, okay. here, you know, before the turn of the century, before and the Europeans. Who knows if and that's sage- correct? And the sagebrush, like, portions of the sagebrush
0: seas were, like, the 100th meridian and west, mm-hmm. in the Great Plains, and then the
2: Great Basin. Yep, that's right. And they no longer exist in three states, so now we have them in 11 states. Uh, it's estimated that about 50% of the habitat's been lost, uh, and that was one of the metrics that led the service to consider uh, the species for listing. They've lost half their habitat. It's been fragmented, it's been degradated. Um, there's all kinds of threats to the remaining habitat and the numbers have been going down for a long time. Now, as you all know, um, game bird populations fluctuate on an annual basis sometime on you know eight to 10 year cycles, but it's all tied to precipitation and the quality of the habitat. And and they the, can, the
0: right rain could double their numbers. The wrong hailstorm could have their exactly.
2: numbers. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so they always have these oscillations on any given year, but the long-term trend has been about 1% decline since 1965 up until the last um, figure in that particular um, study that, that I often reference through the Western Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies was 2015, in 2016, they, the numbers went up quite a bit. Uh, this year, they're they're down more. So they, they fluctuate. But the long-term trend has been down. And that's largely because they've been losing habitat. And if, even if there's sage brush out there, it doesn't necessarily mean it's quality and good condition that, that renders it suitable for the birds. So that's part of the reason that they were even being considered to, to be listed in the first place. We were down somewhere in the neighborhood of two to 400,000 birds which in and of itself isn't necessarily an alarmingly low number, but the longer you kick that can down the road, the more likely it is to go down to maybe oh, 100,000 or 200,000, and then all of a sudden you're at 50 going, oh, shit, now what do we do? Yeah. And it may
1: be irreversible at that point in time. Would you call uh, sage-grouse an indicator species? Yes,
2: and we often refer to them that. Another term would be an umbrella species whereby if you, if you manage habitat across a landscape, for that particular species, you're very likely to encompass a variety of other critters that, that live in that system. We often use that term.
0: What's the term? It's like it's not it, – there's a term that's, It's that's like, similar to like Bergman's rule or Bergman's principle where it's got a name attached to it. But there's a term for when you have – like like with uh, um passenger pigeons, you can have 3 billion of them, and they're fine, but somehow you can't have 50,000 of them. Hmm. Is like
2: a word for this. That just sounds like a tipping point. It's where, like, yeah, there's a point, which, the point, there's a point at which yeah. there's a point at
0: which like you could never maintain a, you could never maintain a species, that we now know you couldn't maintain a species of ten thousand passenger pigeons. Yeah, it has to be that there
2: has to be like a million or none. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not sure.
0: Maybe I am um, making this up. You remember? This well, one I can. Andy? I don't.
2: I can tell you really? one term. Sometimes yeah. people confuse with the indicator species is keystone. That's very different. If If sage-grouse were to somehow miraculously go away, and we certainly hope they don't, I doubt there is a keystone effect. If you take wolves out of an ecosystem, and we saw this with Yellowstone, you can have beaver, for example. You can have huge impacts. On other system, other parts of the systems, that makes sense. Yeah,
0: if the sage grouse goes, you're not likely to see some like cascading series of antelope part like, necessarily going belly Yeah, up. you won't see like yeah. some ecological collapse.
2: Yeah. However, though, um, if sage grouse go. That means their habitat's gone, so my guess would be a lot of other species would go with them. Yeah. So Not because we they went,
0: but because if they exactly. went, it's because the sagebrush is gone. If the sagebrush is gone, you're going to lose 27. That's exactly right. Or some some profound number of, yep. you know.
2: And as we've discussed before to, to the question on the indicator species, there's 350, at least 350 species of plants and animals that are dependent on the sagebrush ecosystem in some way, shape, or form. And Including some big-time game animals. Exactly, mule deer, antelope. Elk. Yeah, and we probably both have stories on chasing deer and busting sage grouse. I got a current one from this buck my cousin and I just killed, and uh, there's sage grouse busting up all over the place while we're trying to put a sneak on this damn deer. Yeah, so they they utilize the same systems.
0: Spring is a great time to do something with your family, do some spring cleaning, which I kind of started today outside, planning outdoor activities, which I'm always doing, taking a little trip to Hawaii with your kids for spring break, which I just did, which was great. You know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And, man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year, and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scattergun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using OnX. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using OnX, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's and I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on OnX, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. On X Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code meat EATER to receive twenty percent off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts, anyways. I don't, I don't I, listen, man. I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like to, I just buy my stuff online, and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts, dude. They make some good shirts, and they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt. Great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting, not not all baggy, better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability and way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to ponchooutdoors.com. Use code Meat Eater for a free hat or t shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping and returns, so you can try them out risk free. All right, so back to our timeline. Yep. Uh, so
2: the Department of Interior at the time, Sally Jewell? No. Yep. Secretary Sally Jewell. Oh, okay. Inherited that from Ken Salazar. Ken Zalzar kind of started all this with the, you know, um, and made uh, some good headway with the states, and then and then Secretary Jewell came in afterwards. Um, the uh, The states were working on their individual state plans uh, back in 2010s when this really kicked off, because there was in fact a lawsuit that that said uh, what what happened back uh, prior to the twenty fifteen decision. The bird was determined to be warranted. For protections under the ESA, but precluded. And what that meant was they definitely warranted those protections, but there were a bunch of other species that had higher priority that were ahead of them. Okay, So that's what the precluded part means now.
0: And that was the wake-up call to the states and to industry that right. you better sort
2: this out or it's going to get real bad for you. That's right. And what really kicked that off, and you'll hear a lot of people talk about the sue and settle scenario. It, there's no doubt there was a lawsuit that forced the decision, and, and Judge Windmill, who was the federal uh, judge that was handed this, uh, this lawsuit, said, no, Fish and Wildlife Service, you're gonna go back and you're gonna, you're gonna actually make a determination, but I'm gonna give you five years to do it. So that's where that whole timeline came in. If that hadn't happened, who knows? How serious people would have taken this you always got a good crisis, got to have a good crisis you know to start doing something it seems like our history is replete with that unfortunately but the proactive is always uh, got to be a little less than the than the reactive so this was a reaction to that lawsuit and everybody did take it serious and started putting state plans together the federal start uh, agencies start working on their federal plans the service is trying to get their head around how this is all going to stitch together into a comprehensive strategy that would get them either to a warranted or a not warranted decision. And what yeah, they, just
0: to, let me just yeah, sure. step in just so people follow the yep. kind of like, when I say that it was a wake up call, like if a species like let, let's say the sage grouse, if the sage grouse were to get listed and, and get endangered species act protections, That is going to shut down a lot of land use activities in places that are vital to sage grouse. So one thing that's damn sure is going to happen is you're not going to hunt them anymore. That's right. So hunting seasons are done. Done. What are also done is a lot of cattle grazing, sheep grazing operations are going to be affected probably. But primarily is going to be like energy development, energy extraction. That industry is going to be just locked out of a lot of places. So we say a wake-up call. These guys might have never paid any attention to sage grouse. Hunters definitely do. Someone says, you know what? I, see a, I sense a long-term problem for sage grouse. I'm going to say that I'm going to, I'm going to argue that they, that they should be listed under the ESA. And I'm going to sue the feds for having not done it. The feds look at it. They come up to a settlement that says, we need time to determine, to, to figure out if this is true or not. Now, all these groups from guys that, sportsmen's groups like the Hunnam and any other business in states that host this business are like, holy shit. If this goes down, our economy goes down. Yep. So we now are all of a sudden real interested in sage grouse. Yep.
2: Thus, the impending crisis that kick-started everybody's It's the uh, hammer. Engine. It's yep. like the hammer
0: over your head. Yep. yep. Is the ESA. And now there's a big movement to try to make the ESA, the hammer not so hammer-like. Right.
2: This was, but that's a whole other conversation. A whole other conversation. <laughs> but, yeah, pull some teeth out of that jaw. Yeah. Well, to bring that full circle back to how we started this how I got into bats, that's exactly what warehouseers saw with what happened with the Spotted Owl. It literally shut down entire community. We're not talking just, you know, three of us getting kicked off our job. We're talking entire parts of states going, you know, having true economic collapse. And and the industry saw the kinds of revenues that were wrapped up in, in the protection zones. And they said, okay, we can't do this again. Let's start let's start being more proactive that's yeah. why i was hired to study bats it seems and harsh but it's one of
0: the beautiful else. things about america is that, that there's some like elements of america that values wildlife so highly yeah but so okay which is unique so to get back on track here yep. i want to make sure we, we we get this covered so so that's all going on and you you were just getting to okay the state started to be like who what what's the sage grouse yeah
2: um you want me to describe a sage grouse? No, no, no. Oh, I'm okay. saying that you're, oh, we're getting to the power. Oh, where they're the, going. Yeah, yeah. The states saying, hey, are all of a sudden getting real interested in yeah, what a sage grouse is. Why? Why do we care about this crater? Yeah. So, you know, the states started putting their plans. Make make no mistake, the state biologists have been watching this for a long time. It just sometimes it takes that looming crisis to oh, really. Like they were get aware the, of this. They were happening. aware of it, and they had they were been doing things, research, monitoring, some habitat projects, those kinds of things. But there wasn't a. You know, a comprehensive strategy for many of the states. Wyoming led the way; they started it in 2008, um, and then other states followed. And so, you had all these state-level efforts going on. You had the federal agencies putting their plans together, and then in 2010, you had something pretty extraordinary, which was the uh, National uh, Natural Resources Conservation Service (NRCS) put an initiative together called the Sage Grouse Initiative that was pumping millions and millions of dollars into private landowners to incentivize them to change their grazing practices, do uh, do some fencing and water type projects that were favorable to sage grouse, all kinds of different things, cut juniper trees, and it incentivized conservation on private lands. So you have those three legs of that stool that kind of put together, made a good solid comprehensive package. In addition to a fire strategy, a firefighting strategy that crossed political boundaries between feds and states and counties, and I don't want to get into that because that's an extensive conversation in of itself, but just make no mistake, firefighting wasn't always as coordinated and it probably still has some issues today, but at least there's a plan and a strategy in place to try to fight fire in the Great Basin in particular where fire is a huge threat to sage grouse habitat and in fact i think in nevada they lost well over a million and a half acres just this year so you could say it's not working but the reality it burns is and, it just, and other
0: shit beats it out
2: yeah yeah well Cheat, and cheatgrass cheatgrass comes back and it's a vicious cycle with that cheatgrass cuz it's a real flashy fuel that burns burns even uh, more extensive than so so you get a catastrophic
0: so. fire destroys the sagebrush and the sagebrush just never gets the leg up because it's getting beat out by invasive plants. It takes
2: a long time to come back. And it varies, you know, some, it depends on precipitation, elevation, and the vegetation community, right? So you've got site potential on any given piece of land that you can grow certain kinds of vegetation really well and sometimes you can't. Yeah. And that, you know, as you go up in elevation and to get into like mountain, big sage systems with, with higher precipitation, um, they have more resistance and resilience, if you will, to fires, and they come back more readily than out in you know parts of the Great Basin, just as an example, where there's much lower precipitation, different okay. soil regime, that kind of thing. But anyway, all those legs of that stool were really important for the Fish and Wildlife Service to say, okay, we've got federal plans that are pretty solid. Um, we've got a lot of state plans uh, of varying degrees of... Uh, ability to address all these different threats to sage grouse we've got these private land efforts lots of money going into that and we've got this firefighting strategy that 's what got them in a comprehensive way to that not warranted decision none of those things probably could have stood alone on their own you needed that comprehensive nature so uh, they were uh, they
0: uh, were able uh, to say like all right we trust all these like inner like these interrelated plans and parts that you've put in place. We trust that
2: that you're gonna recover Sage Grouse. That's in essence, that's exactly what they said. Now and they when, that, when
0: that announcement came, remember it was a big deal. Like, you know, you had the governors from several states, yep. all collected. There was a big speech. Did people were people really thinking that they didn't know what the answer was gonna be? Um Like how serious were they? On the stage? when they no, were No, not, not, I don't care about the stage. Like, that particular... But, I mean, like... Like, was it... Did you know all along? Like, here's a predict. Okay, like, here's another issue. Oh, okay. Like, I anticipate that Pebble Mine in Bristol Bay will not happen. I believe it will never happen. Right. Now, were there people that said the listing will never happen or was it really like people really
2: felt that it might i don't think anybody felt that it was like it was a real possibility yeah no i that was an absolutely real possibility no question about that sorry i didn't follow your line there originally i um no i don't think anybody sat back and said "Ah, that's never gonna happen they may have in 2010 um or even before that but I can assure you, leading up to it, everybody knew that that was, was a very strong possibility. Yeah. And I don't think anybody really knew up until the day of the announcement, except those that of us that were really working on it extensively. I felt, just as a biologist, just thinking about what the determinations of threatened and endangered mean and you know the criteria uh, by which they decide those Um you know, I thought about it in that context. I thought about it in what I could see playing out on the landscape. I didn't think they could get a warrant. They should get a warranted. I felt it it would be a not warranted with all of those pieces in place. However, like if, I,
0: if they're looking at the same data you're looking at, you feel like it should be on felt
2: I didn't feel, I didn't think they could withstand legally a suit if they did list the bird with all that in place. I, I really, gotcha. I really felt like, we had enough to now that gets to the question of okay how much is enough what do you want how many grouse do you want we're not going to have 16 million again or whatever the hell the number was yeah. so you're so
0: you're saying that that uh
2: you're saying that had they said we're going to list the sage grouse you felt that that you could have beat him in court i think uh, if someone would have sued to say that was an inappropriate decision as was done with lesser prairie chickens a few years ago, that. Um, the the court would have said no. I think there is enough here. You you you're going to have to go not warranted. Mm-hmm. Got you. Um, now mind you, after the not warranted was was put in place, lawsuits came on both ends of the extreme. You had uh, you had the hard left. Uh, some of the hard left environmental groups that sued because they didn't think it was enough, and some of the industry groups sued because they thought it was too much. Yeah, because everyone like, even said, I a- think I must have hit the mark because I got somewhere in the middle. Yeah, yeah.
0: I, I had. A, I, I recently had a, a politician tell me that he always knows when he's found his spot when the far left and the far right are about the same. Mad yep. because then I know I've probably got about where I need to be. Yep. But but <laughs> it was like it was generally in the in the hunting inf- like in the sportsman world in the hunting world, it was generally applauded the not necessary because people were so euphoric about uh the fact that all these like disparate groups came together on behalf of this bird. Yeah. Yeah. So people thought of, like this new conservation strategy, yep, that you could that that people could come together, sportsmen's groups, industry, the political world could come together, see a problem coming down the line, address the problem effectively, and not need to get into the game of, of, of using the Endangered Species Act. That we were gonna like solve problems in some kind of way of like working together. Everyone's making a little bit of sacrifice, everyone's putting up That's with right. a little bit of inconvenience and stopping and preventing it from becoming a cultural war.
2: Yep. And, and I wanna talk about that just a little bit because I experienced firsthand both the spotted owl approach and in that era and and sage grouse and they're they were very different and you you hit the nail right on the head we brought all of these groups together to talk about this now it wasn't as proactive and and uh as as maybe we needed to maybe that should have started back in 2005 or 2000 we could have got ahead of the curve even better but it's not that back in the days of the spotted owl that the regulatory agencies weren't talking to the industry. They were talking to counties. They were talking to you know, all the different factions. It's just, it was just different back then. You know, it wasn't as comprehensive and and cohesive as it feels like the sage grouse effort was. And mind you, there's a whole lot more players on the sage grouse front than there were on the timber industry. You know, on the uh, spotted owl issue. And that really wound up being kind of a one size fits all. You hear that rhetoric all the time: one size fits all, federal top down. That's really not how it was. Some will argue with me, and that's fine. They can argue all they want, but the reality is, the sage grouse issue was a little bit more organic and a little bit more, uh, uh, you know, driven by state level uh, players and and local working groups, collaborations with the states and the feds and the and the counties and. All the different uh, industries, the sportsmen's groups were involved. Hell, we weren't involved with spotted owls because um, guys like me aren't interested. <laughs> nobody was going to shoot a spotted owl, you know. And and uh, but you know, we weren't thinking as big about ecosystems then. Yeah, if you yeah. think about spotted owls, you start thinking about tule elk, for example, or some other, or you know, or other types of species that we might hunt in in old growth forest systems. But we weren't thinking like that. We weren't even invited to the table. The sportsmen's groups. And, you know, that that plan, not to get too far down the Spotted Owl path, but the reality is that plan came down after a presidential summit that Clinton held. They brought some players together. The spotted Owl plan. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, they brought some players together. Then the feds went back and wrote it and implemented it specifically to federal lands. It's not that private lands weren't considered or somehow regulated, but they were part of the bigger picture strategy. And I can remember even having discussions when I was doing some of my bat work Talking about, um, you know, uh, the the role of private lands and in, in endangered species in the Northwest, and and spotted owls weren't on on our lands, weren't even necessarily considered as part of the recovery okay. process because it was all about reserve systems on federal lands. Okay, so that really was kind of a one size fits all kind of a strategy. And back to your question, how they doing? They're not doing so good. And maybe if we would have done it like the sage grouse way back then in the 1980s yeah, it might have been a different outcome because they weren't even really considering private lands that much private lands were still regulated but it was just kind of written off that the managed forest doesn't provide anything for spotted owls we've yep. got to conserve them this way with a got preservation you. system that's not at all what happened with the sage grouse and again kind of point i was trying to make is we've always talked to these different factions but we, never, we haven't done it in the way we did with, the, with uh, the sage-grouse issue. It's a new way of doing conservation. I think it's the way we have to do it with anything this at this stage forward. Landscape scale, multiple species, and everybody at the table from the front end. And that doesn't mean every individual or every group, but you get those diverse voices in on the front end Counties, get them engaged. states, exactly. sportsmen groups, yep. industry and that's how you're going to get to making both, both ends of the extremes mad, probably, because you find enough players that are willing to work to a compromise to the middle. Yeah. And that's what this was, in my humble opinion. And then, so, and, and then, then, what happened? A month or so after we spoke last year, we had an election. So, where we left off, you gave us a hypothetical, like you like to do. We're going to bury ourselves in a time capsule right here, in this spot where we were doing that podcast out in the sticks and five years from now where are we going to be and i i expressed lots of optimism and i i didn't say it then but i'd say now oh, we're all going to go hunting sage grouse and do a celebratory hunt Uh, i was pretty optimistic because i felt like i told you earlier i felt like they got to a not warranted in a legitimate and credible way it wasn't perfect um and everybody sacrificed something but we got a good comprehensive strategy that I didn't feel um, was going to yield sage grouse winding up on the, you know, the threatened or endangered species list at some point down the road, if it was implemented, that's the key. So earlier you said crunching the numbers. Well, part of that was crunching the numbers to see what the trends in the habitat and what the trends in the, in the numbers of sage grouse were doing, but what the fish and wildlife service used extensively in this decision was something called the Peace Policy, P.E.C.E. The policy for to the policy to evaluate conservation effects. It's a policy that was put in place in the early two thousands, and what it basically says is that when we make a decision about it, and we the Fish and Wildlife Service are making a decision about a threatened or endangered species, we will look at things that may manifest in the future there's some regulatory certainty or some kind of uh, administrative policy or some level of certainty that these things are going to be implemented in the future. Yeah. And we can consider that as part of our decision. And I can assure you that was extensively used in this particular decision because the federal plans haven't played out yet to, yeah. f- to their fullest you're like, extent. If you're like p- going to
0: some guy, you're going to buy the house from the guy. And you're like, man, you know, the porch is falling off. And the guy's like, listen, bro, I'm going to fix this porch before the sale goes through. And you're like, okay, yep. I'm trusting that the porch is going to be fixed. Yep.
2: And you come back
1: and, and
0: buy you, the house. And you go on and do the deal because the guy's going to fix the porch. Yeah.
2: So what happens when you come back and it's not fixed? You get mad. There was no insurance. No. <laughs> no, but if you sign that in a contract, yeah. in the agreement that you sign when you buy a house, it's like we agree to these things. You come back, it better be fixed or I'm going to sue your ass. Yep that's the it's a pretty good metaphor because that's basically what the fish and wildlife service looked at i've got signed federal plans these are amendments to the resource management plans for the blm and the forest plans for the forest service that codifies they're going to do these things that's an assurance to the service that something's going to happen in the right direction okay
0: um the uh, when we left off before it was kind of like there was a lot of promises had been made but the fulfillment stage hadn't
2: begun that's right and we were like what six eight days after they'd been signed the ink was hardly dry now if i pop out of that time capsule (laughs) up there in the middle of nowhere wyoming where y'all were hunting sage grouse and we were chatting about this i don't know i think it's uh it's up in the air a little bit but i'm still optimistic that we're going to do the right thing and what has happened since then We had an election and a change in administration. Secretary Zinke is now in charge of the Department of Interior. Um, A couple of things that happened uh, in between there, somewhere in about January or February, remember we've talked about some of the bad language and you've helped us with some of this on uh, the National Defense Authorization Act and some of these bad writers on these policies that basically was handing over uh, management authority to the states gave gubernatorial veto power over any decision on sagebrush lands and the federal lands those kinds of things not not necessarily the best policy that we would we would agree with and we advocated pretty strongly against that we'd only seen that come out of the house in february we saw a senate version of that and that that woke us up a little bit that now all of a sudden there may be some potential traction here on both houses like where we're the house
0: and senate so the u.s house and senate your congressmen and senators coming and saying you know on second thought let's not do what we said we were going to do to save the sage grouse.
2: yeah let's do something different let's yeah let's hand it back over so, to the we're in, a cli- we're in a different climate now yeah.
0: different political climate yeah. different administration yeah i wish i kind of wish i hadn't said all that shit because it's not kind of inconvenient yeah. but
2: that That woke us up a little bit and only to the extent there were political motivations for why that was done and such, and we don't need to get into it. But the reality was we now had a House and Senate version threatening some pretty bad legislation. So one of the things we thought would be interesting, and we worked with uh, the Department of Interior at the time for was to get a secretary. We knew there were issues with the states. Let me back up just a little bit. I mean, look, not everybody got what they wanted. Some of the grazing community was unhappy. With certain prescriptions and some things that were playing out in the plans, um, there were mining is- interests that were were fired up. Um, there was, um, and this gets a little bit in the weeds, but there was a designate a prescription, if you will, in these Sage Grouse amendments that were solidified in September of 2015 that added a designation called focal areas. Now, what these were, there's about 35 million acres across BLM land. Of, a, of a, what's called priority habitat, it receives the highest priority and the most restrictive types of prescriptions to manage sagebrush. You can't occupy the surface a certain number of miles or some buffer distance around the breeding grounds for for sage grouse. Um, other kinds of prescriptions that just basically try to keep it intact and in in, in in good habitat quality and condition. So. On top of that, about a third of those acres, about ten million acres of that was scheduled for what was called these focal areas and it would and they had to uh, or they uh, the suggestion was to withdraw them from mining so basically it removes them from the eighteen seventy two mining law now this gets complicated, but all you have to know about the eighteen seventy two mining law I mean it was kind of a land rush kind of a of a prospectors' um, uh, law back in the 1870s, where you know it allowed people, you and I, to go out and stake a claim on public lands. We just go out and look. Yeah, it allows people to go look for for um, minerals without even asking the federal government's permission. Now you can't do anything with it until you get permission. That's a permitting issue and such. But it allows you to go stake a claim, and if you have a valid claim, um, it it takes precedence over surface rights. So subsurface can always take precedent over surface rights. So if I literally didn't own my, in my four acres here in that back lot there, if I didn't own my mineral rights, literally an oil and gas company, if they owned my mineral rights, they could come in and put a well right back there in my yard.
0: Today, because yeah. your because your service rights cannot obstruct their ability to get That's their correct. mineral, to That's get correct. what they want out of and that
2: goes back to the Mineral Leasing Law Act of 1920, I believe, as well. So, so this was a way. So they I, had 10 million acres, and they and they wanted to withdraw all, um, withdraw those acres from mineral claim, and okay. basically, but, but okay,
0: 10 million acres w- we would be withdrawn from mineral claim. How many million acres would be withdrawn if the bird had been listed?
2: Oh, that's a really good point. Um, Hundreds of them. Yeah, it could have been a lot more. It would have been a lot more, potentially. Hundreds of millions. Yeah um I mean not hundreds of millions but there's only a couple hundred million but it it certainly wherever there were minerals in sagebrush it would have been impacted no question. Yeah. And really what it was it was it was it was a reserve uh, ecologically speaking the concept is sound you know you're trying to get it's really the only way the Fish and Wildlife Service can get ahead of the 1872 mining law is to withdraw those mineral right oppor- you know those opportunities Way on the front end of planning, and that's what they were really trying to do: is saying these are the, this is the best of the best habitat, this is where we'd like to see minerals withdrawn, and these are basically reserves for sagebrush. And yeah. it also set prioritization of, you know, a, a variety of other things: vegetation management, firefighting, all those kinds of things. But i can tell you that dropping that designation on top and, and keep in mind it's a subset of the priority habitat so it's already designated as priority habitat and already has various restrictions around it that are codified in the in the resource management it's just like right instead right of, instead of super protected it's super duper protected yeah exactly yeah so and um if they went away it would just take the duper away <laughs> <All right. laughs> really so um but by law you have to do a, an environmental impact statement um, on the withdrawal specifically. And to make a long story short in Nevada, the, the, this went to the courts, uh, mining industry and others sued on that. And basically the, the court said, no, you have to go back and do, you violated the National Environmental Policy Act. You have to go back and do a supplemental EIS, environmental impact statement to supplement the ones that are already existing. And, and so that was decided. And then the, um, the mineral withdrawal part of that was decide, was basically decided upon a, not very long ago, a couple of months ago, where the, the the BLM just said we're not gonna we're not gonna we're going with the no action alternative of this EIS, which is we're not going to withdraw minerals from these areas. So that was the decision that was made. So now you have these focal areas. But you can still do mining claims within them. So basically, they're managed just as if they were priority habitat. Very okay. little has changed. But that designation of focal areas came down pretty pretty late in the game, and it made a lot of the states mad and a lot of the players mad, and it's become a hot-button issue, a the red flag state, issue.
0: States and industry players.
2: Yeah. And it, it really has become a hot-button issue couple other things that are in those plans um, that are, you know, there's argument from the oil and gas industry about density disturbance caps. There's a maximum amount of disturbance that you can have in a particular landscape because sage-grouse are very sensitive to infrastructure development and disturbance from vehicles and all the things that go with developing an oil and gas well or a wind facility or anything else. So there's caps to that and buffers around the lecking areas or the breeding sites where males go to to find, find the girls. And they're very sensitive to that disturbance. So there've been, the science basically supports that, you know, once you get over a certain amount of disturbance, you're going to start seeing, you know, plummeting popula- numbers of males, at least, attending the Lex, which theoretically track with the population. So there's arguments about that. There were concerns about grazing prescriptions. Uh, notably, there's a seven inch double height. The desire is to have about seven inches of grass available when the birds are nesting for nesting cover so they can avoid predators. Um, Everybody's hung up on that seven inches. There's actually quite a bit of flexibility in the plans, but there are many that want that removed, which would take an amendment. It would take a full-blown plan amendment. And so there's all kinds of concerns that were generated. And that led um, Mr. Zinke to do a review of the plans and we we were supportive of a secretarial order that tried to address these issues with the states rather than blowing it up with this bad legislation I was leading to alluding to earlier. Where yeah. we now have a House and a Senate version, it's like okay, this has got a little more traction than it used to. A better way would be for the secretary to try to address these very specific issues that that may or may not affect grouse, you know, deeply in the long run. Yep. Maybe it's just adjusting the boundaries a little bit or or changing, changing a few pieces of the prescription. You still yeah. get the same outcome in the long run, but you get rid of this toxic language, that kind of stuff.
0: Gotcha. So they, they kind of quietly come in, what are the problems? How can we fix the problems right. without really damaging the plan? Right, exactly. And, and you're hopeful for that kind of treatment.
2: Yeah, exactly. And what we were really hoping for, well, and we were hoping that the secretarial order would be very specific to the issues. But what it did was it called to put together a review team and that review team consisted of the Fish and Wildlife Service and, and BLM and, and some other players that were charged with basically looking at all these plans and listening to the states, listening to the stakeholders and try to determine what the issues really were. Now that in and of itself is not an egregious act. If you or I were voted into Secretary of Interior next next time around. Appointed. Uh, appointed. Yeah, I mean you'd wanna you'd wanna take a look at what the predecessors did and just make some assessments. There's nothing wrong with that. But our concern was how Mr. Zinke was starting to talk about sage grouse. He was talking about managing population numbers and he was talking about captive rearing programs to predator control, all these kinds of things that people have talked about and thought about a lot, but he wasn't talking about them the way biologists would talk about them. He was actually talking about them, in my opinion, as if they were going to be mitigation tools to open up oil and gas, but you just captive rear a few birds and throw them out and all's good. And well, okay, but here, that here, work. here you're getting
0: into an important piece, though, that we need to back up on. Yep, because the original plan to recover sage grouse dealt with not going out and just counting up birds, right? So, not going out and saying, like, how many birds should we have, but it came down to looking like how much, how many birds, and how much available habitat, habitat. because right. a hailstorm at the wrong on the wrong day in the spring a hailstorm can cut your population in half that's theoretically right. that's right by cracking the eggs yep yeah. all
2: this stuff is habitat based so you can How destroy a, a
0: whole you can destroy a whole like brood like you know what do you call a bunch of uh a brood. a brood you yep. can destroy
2: a, like a whole area's brood Well, a clutch and then when they hatch it's a brood okay yeah
0: clutch, a clutch. yeah so you could have a bad hailstorm on just the wrong day yep cracks thousands of bird eggs let's say and so then you have a falling population if you just go by bird numbers it's not particularly telling because you could have a really good situation where you're like there's so much habitat that's right so much food i have no doubt that next spring we're going to totally rebound because all the stuff the hard to get shit's there the birds will be fine if you give them the habitat that's right and this is what conservation always comes down to is like it it generally when people are talking about like a conservation issue the the po- the wildlife populations respond to the habitat yep it's generally like watch habitat if you look at the work like if you go look at the work that rocky mountain elk foundation does the work the national wild turkey federation does ducks unlimited oftentimes these organizations are very focused on available habitat knowing that the animals will take care of themselves that's right if you give them a place to do it so so the idea of like the recovery plan for sage grouse was really focused on habitat. That's right. The new idea is, you know what? Let's just count birds, and we will raise them in a pen and turn them loose, and then count. Yep. So if we don't get the number that we want, we'll make it that we get the number we want by just letting them go like chickens. Yep. And then counting at the right moment and being like, see, they're all there, which is fatally flawed. And doomed to, doomed to fail. But almost kind of cynical. Right. It's like, oh, you want birds, do you? Here you go, buddy. Naive answer. I'll turn some loose tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Which, if we learned anything in other, bird, in other wild bird recoveries, is that pen-raised birds don't work. That's right. Especially for native grouse. And the wild turkey. Yep. They spent millions thinking they were going to recover the wild turkey with a, cap, captive, with a reintroduction program. And, the, and then what it wound up taking was it wound up taking that you would capture birds, capture wild birds whose ancestors were wild and move those birds into new areas and you would recover the population. Yeah. That's yep. what it took with turkeys. Yep. They, they spent, the Turkey Federation in many states spent a small fortune learning that lesson. Yep.
2: Well, and look at Atwater's Prairie don't Chicken. Work. Atwater's Prairie Chicken. I mean, the only reason we really still have any Atwater's Prairie Chicken is because of a captive rearing program, but they can't get the birds that have been captively reared to then raise their own young out in the wild. Something gets so lost. So you just got to keep dumping them. And you're in this perpetual cycle of having to put birds on the landscapes to say that we still have Atwater's Prairie Chickens.
0: Yeah, if you want to get so, a census, if you, so it'd be interesting, it might even exist. Someone should draw up a map that shows like the ringneck pheasant is not a, you know, like, so as much as you see like pheasants, pheasants, pheasants in America, the ringneck pheasant is not a native bird. Right. Right. If you'd made a map showing, they'd be interested to have a map of the US with one color showing where we have pheasants and one color showing where we would have pheasants if it wasn't for releasing programs. Yep. That'd be an interesting That'd be map. It'd be an
2: interesting map, yeah. Chuckers, too. I can map. tell you,
0: the one, the, the part that shows where we'd have birds if it wasn't for supplemental stocking would be way,
2: way, way smaller than the part showing where pheasants are. <laughs> <laughs> yep, it would. You know where they first reintroduced pheasants? No. Lambert Valley, Oregon. Did they? Yep. It's the first place they reintroduced no, pheasants. No, no.
0: Yep. In Young Guns. Um, yeah, yeah. That's in Young right. Guns, he kicks up a pheasant. Yeah. And I remember thinking, were well, there pheasants around back then? Yeah. Or was that too, uh, they get their stuff wrong? But in, yeah. in uh, last Mohicans, they kill a red deer, a red stag. That's right,
2: in the east. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's hard to pull we're that kind of stuff there. over on hunting guys man. that's right we're like we watch movies and we're like we always know when we smell something fishy with the wildlife
2: i used to like watching the old johnny Weissmuller tarzan movies and i'd hear a bird in the background and go that's a freaking pileated woodpecker <laughs> not endemic to africa i'm pretty sure so all right anyway, so, so, so yeah so they
0: get the idea yeah y- you were just getting to that the that the incoming yeah. secretary starts talking about birds in a way that
2: that
0: doesn't sound like we're we're on this sort of thing about how we're going to save the bird by protecting habitat.
2: That's right. And you've also got an administration that is promoting energy. It was independence. Now it's dominance. Uh, We just saw a report come out uh, recently from the Department of Interior on energy burdens. And as you guys guys might imagine, just about anything could be considered a burden to development. Um, So there's a lot of things aligning that make us concerned and nervous about this amendment process. And, you know, it's no different than opening up the endangered species act or any piece of legislation. If it's targeted and specific to increasing efficiency and effectiveness and those kinds of things, that's hard to argue, but you know, everybody starts to want to hang an ornament on the Christmas tree and all of a sudden it falls down. So, you know, the, the motivations behind um, the review in my opinion, we're fine and solid. I'd want to review things that a predecessor had done before. But how that plays out is going to be interesting because we have yet, as I said about the peace policy earlier, that not warranted decision was predicated heavily on things being implemented into the future. And not all BLM offices are implementing the plans in their fullest extent. There's a lot of confusion right now. About where this is all going to go, and you know some some states and some offices are moving right ahead, and some are still trying to figure it out. So, but regardless, we have we have yet to see full blown implementation across the board, across sage lands of these plants. So there's now weird, there's kind of a weird sort short sightedness going on, right? Where
0: if you have an administration come in, who an administration come in where they like they they not real worried about the bird more worried about industry and then you let the bird falter you need to like think ahead because we have a thing that happens in this country where we have wild political vacillations the pendulum swing as we call it and someone else might come in in four years or in eight years another person is going to come in and they're going to have their own appointee for the secretary of interior and they're going to look and be like sons of bitches Never did do the sage grouse thing right <laughs> now. I am going to list them. Yeah. The, the fact that people go like, Oh, the current climate will always be here. So let's just screw this whole sage grouse thing. You'd think that you'd still be real interested in solving the problem because you're not always going
2: to have your people in charge. Well you're you're interjecting long-term thinking and rational thought Stephen. <laughs> Not yeah. everybody thinks that way, you know. I mean, you know, sometimes industry thinks out to the next quarter and that's a, a a year out maybe. Now that's long-term thinking and planning. And look what happened with the spotted owl now that we've used that as our one of our talking points in this. That pendulum swung hard and too far hard in my opinion. I mean, we haven't seen meaningful timber harvest in a lot of places particularly the northwest but for a long time since then and now we've got like old old growth logging just shut just shut down but a lot of logging on public lands is shut down there's not much of a timber industry here in the rocky mountains either quite frankly a little bit but you know you as you guys drive around and hunt you can see dead trees lots of standing forest you know there's there's just it was a big pendulum swing back then Um, but prior to that it was swung the other direction they were they were cutting federal lands as if they were private lands to some extent. So, and, they, and make no mistake, the industry was warned well before the listing of the spotted owl. I know the people that did the warning back in the 70s. They said, look, this is going to be an issue for us, and we need to deal with it. And really about the only thing that happened in the, in the years to, to come, right before the listing, was increased accelerated timber harvest. Which exacerbated the issue. <laughs> yeah. So almost, almost in a in a in a gosh, if we don't have the ha- in, a, in the sense of if we don't even have the habitat, we won't have to worry about this. But it didn't quite work out that so way. In that, so. that
0: that that like thinking of the next quarter, like profit earnings for the yeah. next quarter, next year, and very few people looking at what's business like in five yeah. years.
2: And this pendulum now is going to swing back eventually. Dude, and I'm
0: it, just, listen. It's, there's no way if if they don't get if they don't get serious about this problem. There's no way that in, that in four years someone's not going to say, like, son of a bitch, we should have got more serious about this problem. Yep. That's right.
2: And, you know, it, I'm, I'm still hopeful, back to our time capsule thing five years from now, I'm still hopeful because we haven't, nothing's really been done yet. Um, it's, but the stage is set. And so the amendment process, so let me back up a little bit. So this report comes out um, mid-summer or so. From the secretary, the secretarial order came out and said, we're going to review these plans and look at them all, look at all these issues. It generated a list of issues that people had. And then this review team, which is a very credible group of individuals, put together a matrix of actions. So some of them were short term, some of them were long term. So, for example, um, if they wanted to completely eliminate these focal areas, it would require a plan amendment. If they wanted to change certain prescriptions In um, the the grazing section, that might require an amendment. Now, the amendment process in BLM planning is extensive. At minimum, probably 18 months, it could go out for another three years. So some of these things that need to be fixed, we felt a lot of those things could be fixed with just clarification, training, better instruction. on Here's how you need to implement these things. Others... um, might require a plan amendment, but our position was, why don't you let this play out a little bit and just actually implement the plans, gather some information and see what needs to be fixed then. But there's a rush. You know, people are kind of looking at the clock and this administration may or may not be around in 2020 and it's going to take three years probably to get through this amendment process. So now what's happening is there's an, uh, they're going to open up the plans potentially for an amendment process. Right now they're taking public comment on um the federal plans and whether they should be amended and changed basically so you've got them codified now in the current resource management plan that was that was changed in september 15 uh 2015 that got us to the not warranted now they're looking at changing it we haven't even hardly gotten started yet
0: so so where's the where's the like the the sportsman community at on this now well if you look at like like the hunter-based conservation community where do they tend to be on what should be happening?
2: Well, I know of no mainstream or, or uh, other type organization that is engaged or cognizantly, cognizant and aware of the issue that really wants this opened up, except a couple of fringe element type groups. But the vast majority of the sportsmen groups don't want to, to to open these plans up. They want to get them implemented I mean, everybody that I know, adjusted, refined, implemented. Sure. I mean, look, no credible scientist or biologist would say that it's a bad idea to make something better if you got data to prove it. (laughs) But the problem is they don't have a lot of existing information to demonstrate that something will or will not work. So, for example, if the industry wants to come back and say, "Well, gosh, you know, we don't think this disturbance cap of a maximum of five percent in some landscape area." is correct we think it should be 20 percent. they don't have any data to prove that i can assure you but they may lobby to have it changed yeah they just don't have any scientific information to back it and that's kind of been our position from day one if there is science underpinning a buffer distance or a disturbance uh, cap in an area or whatever the prescription is let's use that to improve the plans but there's a lot of those areas that in my humble opinion don't have that science And it's it's not supported and substantiated. A lot of times, what we'll hear industry say is that a lot of the energy studies and there's probably twenty five plus studies that have looked at energy impacts on grouse. None of them say energy development's good for grouse. That's one bit of information. All of them collectively pretty much say that it's negative at some level. And you know, I'm a scientist. I can pick, or at least I used to be, (laughs) a practicing scientist. I can. I can find a hole in every piece of every study that's out there. I mean, ecology isn't perfect, and you can find a hole in a study. But the weight of evidence, and this is like the way I like to couch this, the weight of evidence is very clear that energy development at certain levels has an impact on the bird. There's just no denying that. But one of the arguments is that, well, all those studies looked at the old technology. Now we've got the new technology where we can put multiple pads on or multiple wells on a pad, which is true. Um, we have less disturbance on the landscape. That's true as well. But at some level, that doesn't, that argument doesn't matter. It's still disturbance on the landscape, and the birds are going to respond at some level to that disturbance. So it doesn't matter if you're drilling horizontally three miles out or straight down 300 meters. It's still infrastructure, and there's still disturbance. So, um, you know they're going to have to demonstrate that it's more than just new technology that you know they have information that would demonstrate there's a reason you can shrink those those buffers or or expand them or whatever yeah so and i haven't seen that information yet so it'll but there's a lot of efforts that are ongoing now and new science that's coming but but the bottom line is we've got to implement these plans and you know there there's some tweaking of the plans that can happen right now that it's like i said if if the focal area boundaries were you know to somehow disappear i don't think grouse are going to disappear i also don't know that it's necessary to completely open up the plans to do that but that may be where they go but the the thing people have to remember is that it's just a sub designation within that broader designation of priority habitat all of that habitat still going to be managed yeah the, you know unless those prescriptions change. That's our concern. So what's what's
0: the next step for people? What what should people be, if people are following this issue, what's the thing they should be doing now?
2: Well, the public needs to, to express their, and our sportsman's community need to express themselves. We've got an open action alert now. And basically what we're saying is that, you know, some targeted amendments that are supported with scientific information, you know, could be acceptable. But don't be throwing the baby out with the bathwater here and by the way governors mead and hickenlooper who you've shared the stage with and know their work quite well republican and democrat yep both working on sage grouse they're saying the same things you know let the plan work let the plans work let the collaboration work don't make this a federal top-down war on the west as some proclaim on on different sides of the aisle i mean it's not that different let this play out and work. Some targeted changes can be acceptable, but don't, don't be making major whole-scale changes. So we've got an open action alert now, um, and you can just go to the Theodore Roosevelt Conservation Partnerships website and take action on sage-grouse. And basically what it says is that we don't want to see whole-scale changes. We want to see this collaboration work. Um, targeted changes maybe in the future, but uh, that's kind of what it basically says.
0: slash meat eater applying for tags each year in the west can be daunting y- y- yeah i apply for everything everywhere it's daunting you have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply well this is a thing of the past now Onx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters this tool helps organize the data that matters makes comparing hunt options easy and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings on x hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to hunt and fool who i use for boots on the ground insight and knowledge and a membership to hunt reminder so you never miss another deadline stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024 check out on x hunt research tools free for all on X hunt elite members not an elite member well let's fix that use code meateater to receive 20 percent off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this is an app i use literally every day i use it for every aspect of hunting scouting trapping you name it Hey, I'm excited to share our newest sponsor here on the Meat Eater Podcast, which is Poncho Outdoors. The reason I'm excited is I buy their shirts, anyways. I don't. I, don't, I listen, man. I, I rarely go into stores to buy clothes. I like. To, I just buy myself online, and I love their shirts. Max that I work with, Max Bard, who comes on the podcast one day. I don't know if he sent me a link to this place. I went on and bought some shirts. Dude, they make some good shirts, and they even have an option where if you're like a skinny dude, you can click like the skinny dude thing and get like a whole different cut of the shirt great. Based in Austin, Texas, Poncho is committed to crafting the world's best outdoor shirts for men. They got it started out with a lightweight fishing shirt. Now they make all kinds of other lines. Western, denim, flannel, corduroy. Better fitting. Not not all baggy. Better performing because they got modern fabrics with some stretch and breathability and way comfortable. Poncho is only sold on their own website. So head over to PonchoOutdoors.com Use code meat eater for a free hat or t-shirt with any purchase of a shirt. Poncho offers free shipping
2: and returns. So you can try them out risk free. So that's what they should be doing, but they should also, you know, people should just be aware and paying attention to, and it kind of comes back to what you said. This is a new way of conservation. In my opinion, and many of my colleagues and many of the people you talk to say the same thing. Uh, You know the way the sage grouse plans and this whole manifestation of conservation strategy to get to that not warranted decision really was a a miracle and and really a a a major milestone in contemporary wildlife. It was like such a
0: piece of good news, man. It was like
2: this euphoric moment. It was. And again, not everybody got what they wanted, and some of the fringe elements are really pissed and, and fired up, but. The bottom line is it was a hell of an effort to get it there. Now we got to make it manifest on the landscape. Because right now there's a lot of areas that are just paper birds and paper habitat. It's all in a, in a document until it manifests on the ground. That's when we get real habitat and real birds. That's what we got to have happen. You know,
0: I think from my personal perspective, this always makes me think of is that if you're like, like hunters and fishermen really, it's almost like you don't have a political home. Now this is me talking personally. I want to implicate you in this, but it's like you don't have a political home because the political world's too dirty. Like from the left, okay, like the, again, the, I'm not implicating Ed in this observation at all, but from the left, from the Democrat side, you have like an atmosphere that's not cult, like is culturally oftentimes culturally hostile to hunters. like right uh, now, there's a thing in Arizona, there's a referendum coming up in Arizona to ban the lion hunting and bobcats. I, I, I promise you a Republican did not put that up, right, okay. So we're always getting attacked on the Democrat side. You're always getting attacked culturally. People are trying to like restrict your rights, mess with wildlife management, give like New Jersey cat ladies sort of an outside vo- outsized voice in how we manage wildlife in America, ban certain hunting practices. You're just getting attacked all the time there. Firearms issues. And then from the Republican side, we're always getting attacked on habitat issues. Yeah. It's like I want to start a new Political party. I mean, like like the Roosevelt party, which is going to be like Bull any Moose. kind of so, any Moose kind of party. yeah, the Bull Moose party. Any social issue it'd be like no comment. It'll be fiscally conservative, robust military, like ardently pro
2: habitat. Yeah, I like that. And like Maybe make a that a new liberal. Maybe a little socially liberal too. To socially, sure libertarian, socially libertarian. Socially yeah. libertarian.
0: Listen, privacy of your own home, bro. Yeah, right. <laughs> like a strong respect for that. But generally, social issues, no comment. You'll figure it out on yep. your own, privately, please. Yep. But uh, it, it just sucks, man. And and I know, like, I, I know a good many people in the political world, like, who are like people who are willing to work in a bipartisan way, from the right and from the left, to come to like good decisions and like have wildlife in mind. Like those people do exist, but those people are generally regarded as like very quiet individuals. Yeah. That, and most people in America like can't understand people who speak in a pragmatic, quiet way. They can only understand just like in like loud insanity, or not yeah. understand, but th- but they, they they like it because it's like oh, I get that. I can get that so easily. That's yeah. easy for me to understand. Complicated shit. I don't want. Ha- I don't have time to- for complicated shit. I want the one sentence fix. Yep. And you wind up. It just gets so frustrating, man.
2: And these are complicated issues, right? And they're hard to put in one sentence, but you have to because, I mean, you guys do this and in, in television all the time. You've got a message in a way that resonates with a much broader audience than, than the three of us sitting here. And I had to do that when I was doing my science. Now that I'm glad we brought up the Weyerhaeuser connection, we'll just come back to that because I, you know... I remember being a scientist in that organization, but you had to also be a pretty good communicator with those that didn't want to know. They just didn't want to know about all your science. I was even told one time, it's like we hired you because we thought you were a good scientist. I don't want to hear all that shit about statistics and such. Tell me what it means, what the bottom line is, why should we care? What's the bottom line for the business and how can we fix it? So you've got to, you got to break things down and make it important to the, to not, in this case, managers, but to the public. It's like, why is it important? Why should you give a shit about sage grouse? And not that many people probably do in the big picture until you put it in a broader context. Because yeah. how
0: we learn to address the sage grouse issue is going gonna, is gonna to have implications for every other situation when this comes up. That's and this right. will continuously come up. And right now, we're talking about it with sage grouse, we're talking about it with wolves in the Upper Great Lakes. We're talking about it with grizzly bears. Tomorrow, I don't even know who we're going to be talking about.
2: So my about. prediction is the Northern Great Plains and the short grass prairie, that prairie system there is going to be the next sagebrush and sage grouse. Mm. And, and the we, ducks, right? Well, and sharp grouse, prairie chickens. We, yeah, we had a big conversation about species. ducks a long time ago.
0: Yeah. With the, you know, the prairie pothole region. Yep. So, yeah. But look, we'll at the probably, we'll
2: look, at, look at the Bakken. We'll have Look at the Bakken. Look at wind development and that kind of, that, that area is considered the Saudi Arabia of wind. And the only reason it hasn't been developed extensively is there's no transmission right now. So, so it's like we, we either gonna, have. There's a lot forthcoming and we yeah, need to be thinking like, big.
0: But to get into a situation where we can look at conservation issues and look at wildlife issues and sort of make like a template. For how to approach long term issues that will insulate them a little bit from wild political vacillations. Yep.
2: And I think we know how to do it. I mean, I'm not going to tell you all the science is there, but I've been playing this game a long time. And, uh, you know, the reality is we've got the tools, we've got a good chunk of the science. We know conceptually how to do adaptive management, which is learning by doing. We do something on the ground, we monitor it, and then we fix it and do something. You know, we've got all those kinds of tools. And now we really know who all the players need to be. We just need to incentivize the conservation efforts and make every, give everybody skin in the game. And I to, I've always said that if we've got to make conservation an investment, not an impediment. And we're doing that you know, in a lot of ways, but we need to do it more because we're not growing any more acres. No. I can tell you that. We're losing acres. <laughs> if and you look the, at coast, the coast, it's like we're losing acres. We're not going to grow anymore. We got to do good with what we got
0: for sure. And, and it's like it's even, it gets even more complicated because I feel like you know Secretary Zinke's done a lot of great stuff with access issues and other things. But so it's like he's in a situation where you kind of see it's like getting heat on one thing, right? And, and you're trying to like satisfy and do some you know, like clearly trying to do some good things for sportsman's access and other issues, and getting hammered on other stuff. So it's like it's a hard for a person to find that happy ground where just the radical right and the radical left are pissed. It wasn't being very difficult for political operators to work in the situation. And yep. just to look at the sage grouse issue, like here's another complicated thing. Those people like, like the people in industry have been screwed before. Oh yeah. Yeah. And Western and States have been screwed before as they keep getting screwed on Wolf, on the Wolf issue. And on the Grizzly issue where you're like, you came and said, we agreed we agreed what grizzly bear recovery looks like we talked about it 20 years ago we've met that for 13 years the
2: moving goalposts. so
0: it's like and we made a plan on wolves do you remember we talked about what wolf recovery would look like we achieved it why do we still have to talk about it now so they do get screwed on stuff yeah yeah and it's like, and I think screwing them on those things coming from the ra- there, coming from like screwing them from the radical left perspective winds up
2: making people put up walls and not wanting to have conversations that could be more effective. Yep. Well, it's part of one of the consequences of partisan politics and we're very partisan now and that pendulum swings back. My fear is that it swings back the other direction too far. Yes. Can't we figure out a space in the middle? My new political party. You know? Yeah, exactly. I like that. Dude, when That's that party's in the middle, <laughs> the one in the middle. Well, I'd, I'd sign up for that party.
0: Yeah, when I get that party pretty, going, and we got the House, Senate, White House, I have all we we have all the Supreme Court nominees. Wildlife's gonna be solid, man.
2: Yep. Well, good and we'll be, hunting and fishing, <laughs> and we'll make conservation an investment for everybody's future,
0: and and good mountain lion seasons in all appropriate locations.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Yanni, got any concluding thoughts? Well, yeah, you were telling me the other day we were talking about um, uh, mountain men, I believe, right? And how like everybody's talking about how you want to go back in time, like see what the country was like back then, right? And everybody has these like visions, right? I have those. And that's what we hope for. Well, I think like now is the time to, to try to like look to the future and think like, that our kids are going to want to go, man, wish I could have seen what that sage receive was like back then. Wish I could have seen all that. That was pretty damn cool. And we need to really keep that at, you know, like keep thinking about that. Cause it's so easy. I think to forget with all the, just it is the partisan stuff of it, you know, and you just can't get wrapped up in emotions and just think about the big picture. It doesn't matter what political party you're affiliated with. Like, we all want to like look back and kind of we wish we could see what this country looked like hundred years ago, right?
0: Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's sort funny. Of that's almost something that people like universally agree about. Or people who are interested in, I mean, this is a wide net, right? People are interested in wildlife, hunting, American history, Western history, Pioneer history, Dan Boone, whatever. People who are interested in that sort of shit generally are like holy smokes man it would have been great to see what lewis and clark saw so pay attention to that little part of your brain because that little part of your brain is telling you something
2: important do you want to
0: strive for a future that works looks more like that or less like that
2: yeah yeah the catch is don't don't hang up on it ever looking like that again but think about what it did look like and what you could do to make it look as close to that as possible into the future, because it ain't going to be the same. We yeah, and let's have not million. have this
1: conversation about pronghorn antelope and mule deer. Exactly. Please. If we get well, to the, the 20, we 20 years, we'll point. be talking about yeah.
0: listing, like mule deer listing. Yeah. Are they going to give ESA a listing to the mule deer? Because we weren't paying attention to when fir- people first started bringing up to us 30 years ago that the, yep. the mule deer is going to need some
2: little teeny bit of help? Well, I've told you this. I, told, I, I think we talked about this in the last cast on... Uh, On on sage grouse. This wasn't a shock. This didn't manifest in 2005 or 10 and wasn't court ordered. I mean, it was court ordered, but that's not what the driver was. The driver was we drug our damn feet for a couple, three decades when we were warned. Same thing with spotted owls. The industry was warned, but there was no hammer immediately hovering right over the head. And that's the problem. We've been reactive throughout. The history of wildlife management there's just so many examples of that and we're damn lucky we got what we got back to the whole notion of what other countries have (laughs) or don't have so we have a lot of incentive in this country to have conservation and wildlife well, we got to get out of uh and we've been having these conversations a lot on the esa i've been working with governor mead's uh um, endangered species act initiative from the day it started and now we're into a little bit more conversation about how do we avoid having to use the endangered species in the first place which was one of my fundamental tenets when i gave testimony in the first conference well I think we
0: figured out how to avoid using it which was on
2: like bringing a bunch of people together to yeah figure out how everybody's going to give a little bit to make the thing that's right and being more proactive and putting money on the front it's like going into the mechanic after you drove the the vehicle for three more thousand miles with low oil change no oil change yeah exactly it's like oh you blew your engine (laughs) (laughs) you should have saw me earlier probably could have done that for 40 bucks just saw me earlier when it was
0: just come down to an oil
2: change exactly
0: you know just to return to a thought man and this is kind of me just operating in my own mind but like aldo leopold in San County, Almanac Aldo Leopold talks about. Okay, I'm going to bring this up, but now I got I'm now caught in a trap. Where I got to dig a little bit deeper. Aldo Leopold's talking about technology. So he's talking specifically about hunting technology, and he was saying that like that you can't improve the well, you can't improve the pump without improving the well. Yeah, he's not talking about know. oil rigs. He's talking about water. Yep, water. But meaning. If you're gonna make it easier and easier and easier to extract more and more and more water, you're gonna have to figure out a way to make the well better too. Deeper and better and purer. Yeah. Because you will suck that some bitch dry if you're not thinking about both. And when I think about that's like kinds of winds up being that that partisan battle I was talking about earlier. Yeah. I feel that like that from the right, we're like the the right side of me. Okay, the right leaning, right wing leaning side of me is usually very interested in like improving the pump. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Improving access, democratically allocated public access to wildlife. Like I like right that to resources for us to use renewable resources. Wildlife resources. The left leaning side of me is like and let's make the well
2: deep and wide. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Well and and to Yanni's point on the legacy, one of my favorite quotes that Roosevelt had was about conservation and stating that it means preservation and development. And he recognized the rights, maybe he didn't say rights, but he recognized the needs to use these resources, but he didn't appreciate or recognize the rights to steal those from future generations. Paraphrasing a lot there, but conservation is about development and preservation
0: we've talked about this a thousand times before but exactly. when i'm gonna tell the story again uh theodore roosevelt right was very interested in preserving wildlife and saving wildlife and so and there had been a argument where someone said so if the wildlife if af- is as you're saying that wildlife belongs to the american people we're americans let us in there and let us go get it all since it's ours anyways and he says well yes it belongs to you but it also belongs to those in the womb of time the womb of time yep it's not all yours right now some is yours right now some is for those who will
2: follow man do we need leopold and roosevelt back don't we Somebody, some big thinkers in political As my buddy Doug world. Dern puts it,
0: when, when speaking of, uh, his family farm has been in his family for generations, and when, when, think, when thinking about decisions around his family farm, he says, of, of him and his siblings, you know, he'll be like, it's not ours, it's our turn. It's our turn. Yep. Great way to think about it. Yeah. You know, I don't know if Doug made that up or not, but he likes it,
2: <laughs> and I like it. Doesn't matter. It's profound.
0: Do right, you, you got any final thoughts, Ed?
2: I just hope I kill an elk next week. I need to fill my freezer and take from today and and uh, leave a little for tomorrow. Leave a little for tomorrow. <laughs> nah, it's been great talking again. It's my fourth time. You guys need to come up with a five timers jacket or something if we ever do this. Yeah, like yeah, a Letterman like jacket sa- says you know, "Leader like, Podcast" on the like, back, like Saturday Night Live. <laughs> the five timers. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, what we'll do is in a year we're going to come talk to you and see where we're at 52
2: episodes from now we're going to come to talk to you about sage grouse again we'll see where we're at i hope we're in a good place i'm still optimistic but cautious optimism i hope that next year when we're talking
0: about they'll keep this birds sage grouse be banging into the windows (laughs) there's so many out there they're just like errantly flying around and coming in the
2: house and we're throwing them out the door maybe maybe i mean i i think that uh you know, as this defines the conservation model for the future, we need to learn from it and grow and build and, and look to the next one.
1: Instead and, of getting, and don't make the
2: same mistakes twice. Isn't that the definition of insanity? Yeah. Keep trying the same thing over and hoping to get a different result. Doesn't work. Right. Learn, learn from the mistakes of the past. Thanks again, Ed.
0: 52 episodes from now, we will talk again. <laughs> I appreciate you guys. Keep
1: doing what you're doing. Thanks, Ed. Okay, a couple things, though, before you go. Oh, you got add-ons yeah. Yeah. We appreciate all the reviews and the ratings. You guys are killing it on that, but I know because I see how many there are that there are still thousands of you out there that have not written a review and have not given us a rating. Steve prefers Mark, Ed it. Ed just
0: raise his hand. You Steve, never gave a rating, Steve, Ed.
1: Steve prefers. I prefer <laughs> it if you just do the five star one. If you're not going to do the five star one, don't bother. Oh yeah, don't give it like a low rating. I no, mean, you know what? Go, I don't care what kind <laughs> of rating. No, no, don't just give it. Just go. I
0: always say, just to make it easy for you, go to the rightmost star and click it. You've never given a rating, Ed.
2: I've never seen the stars on what I'm listening. <laughs> to. Uh, the way I'm listening to it, I'm, I've looked. I've Come on, dude. Right, you, here's the thing: why. people I, don't realize. Yeah, that's why I'm not on iTunes.
0: People don't realize. How helpful it is to us to go and give the damn five star rating. Write it. whatever you want. No one's going to care. But Ed, I would think that you'd be on there being like, man, I've been on the show four times. <laughs> you'd think so. <laughs> Love it. Well, I'd give
1: these guys six stars. But I'd but
0: give them six. Available. But you
2: guys know my AI. Everything you do is six star, <laughs> 10 star. Go and give ratings. But I will go find it. But I'm not on iTunes. That's maybe why. Well, I'll give it
0: a That doesn't matter. Give it I'll a rating. It I, whatever, however you listen. Mm-hmm. Stitcher, iTunes. I mean, there's like the vast, like those two cover the vast majority of people you can go to the to the meat eater.com and listen right there however you're doing it go give it a mega five star right, rating and then you know write your thoughts down. i don't want to read your thoughts just put down yeah the stars I what else yanni
1: uh be on the lookout for the meat eater.com big black friday sale it's coming at you Yeah, you get a Meteor Podcast t-shirt. That's the Friday after Thanksgiving if you're not hip to Black Friday. And that means that um, it's a day that people like to shop. That's right. I believe after Black Friday, now there's a Cyber Monday. Yeah, and that's when you buy shit online. Mm -hmm. So do all that. What else, Yanni? Um, If you're looking for a pocket knife... You need to go to Benchmade and check out their pocket knives, especially check out their new bug out. I just got a bug oh, out. Yeah. It's a sweet little knife. Dude. Did you get one too? No, but he yeah. showed me one. It's light, it's simple, I like it. The only reason I got one is because I was being a dumbass and I walked into the airport with my uh, <laughs> with, took your other one. with my G10 on my on my clip on my belt so I had to leave it. So you got, a new, you got the new bug out? Yeah. It's like a
0: super lightweight little knife. Yeah. Like super, let's say you have like a paper clip on your pocket. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, did I ever, did, did you ever hear us talk about this ad in the catch can airport? It's like the thing that brings me the most happiness in all the world outside of my own children in hunting. <laughs> is that in the Ketchikan Airport, wife. there's a display, and my wife. <laughs> I got your back. There's Katie. a display of, of stuff they've confiscated from people. <laughs> ah. there's, in this display is a, is a full on brass knuckles dagger. No kidding. Yeah. Oh, man. Where guys like that. traveling with a brass knuckles dagger. Yeah. It's the greatest. I've seen like, one of those cases, but I've never seen a brass knuckles it's knuckle dagger. It's just like the greatest. Like, What do you mean I can't have? Uh, mean, I can't bring this on.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it's got a really nice, <laughs> fancy bench made knife in there. Oh,
0: yeah, there's some, there's some like quality blades in mm-hmm. there, too, but there's some crazy stuff that people try to bring on planes. Well, ask Ronnie Bame about that sometime. I don't want to go into details, but you might want to ask him like, <laughs> about TSA rules. How to get letters from the TSA. <laughs> what else? That, That's all I got. Five stars. Hey, check this out. Uh, Last time we asked for stars, a bunch of people came and gave stars, and it's good for us. It was really helpful. I don't want to explain all why, but but it's good to give them their stars. Also, as long as we're on the subject of you helping me, us, is if you go on all the time, and you're like, now and then you're like, oh, I'm going to go listen to the Meat Eater podcast, uh, subscribe, right? That's hugely helpful. If you subscribe and it just comes to you automatically, that's good for you. Cause it eases you into good listening, and it's good for us because it just—it's like it's like a demonstration of, of 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 reach. So subscribe, five stars, Black Friday, right? With the Monday, <laughs> the Monday
2: <laughs> Cyber Monday,
0: and also throw your support. Uh, there's so many great conservation groups out there that generally you'll find speak with a pretty unified voice. So if, if you're a hunter or a fisherman and you're, and you're hearing about complicated things and you're reluctant or leery about wading into something and advocating a certain viewpoint without knowing all the sides, it is a smart idea to just kind of go and do a survey about where leading national conservation groups, like where are they making stands on certain issues? And I I think that you'll find that on a lot of these issues, you'll find like pretty good cohesion around reasonable policies and policy solutions. Uh, I like the work of the TRCP just as I like the work of many conservation groups, some of which I've named here today. But um, check them out. Check out others too. And go sort of gather up like how people in the conservation space and the hunting and fishing space, how are they looking at wildlife issues, resource management issues, and begin to educate yourself that way. And you hopefully will find groups that kind of resonate with you and you can throw your support behind them. But start out by just kind of like take a look at sort of the the national picture of how these conversations are going and, and start to learn about it. And then you'll want to, I think, hopefully – you want to start exercising, uh, you know, flexing some of your personal muscle by by getting behind these groups and making good hunting and fishing for not just you, but your kids and their kids. All right,
2: That's it for me. And I can tell you it makes a difference. Everything Steve said, having worked in this arena now, it works and it does make a difference. You're talking to five Maker. stars, right? The five stars, (laughs) the six stars works even better. The five stars works, but conservation advocacy works too. It really does. And we make sure it works by amplifying your voice. So we appreciate you saying that. All right. Stay tuned. This festival
0: and concert season will be all about the boots and Tacova's is your stop before attending your next concert. All Tacova's boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. Yeah, Steve, they're very comfortable, they're very fashionable, and I enjoy wearing mine around the office and anywhere I go. Stop by your local Tacobas store, have a complimentary drink, and shop new styles. If you can't make it to a store, just visit tacobas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com, and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui Venison is thinning out some of those axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit Maui Nui Venison dot com. That's M A U I N U I Venison dot com. Use promo code MEATEATER Eater for twenty percent off your order.